Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a wonderful Sunday here at Taylorville, <laughs> right? Uh, another wonderful Sunday here at Taylorville United Methodist Church. Um, I'm so glad to have all of you here with us today. Uh, I pray that this can be a time uh, where uh, we feel the blessings of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit moving within and among us uh, as we've gathered here today in worship. I also wanted to give you a heads up in your bulletin uh, it says that we have a choral creed to be sung today. Uh, unfortunately, that's going to happen at a later time. So today, if you need the words to the Apostles' Creed, uh, which we'll be reciting like normal, you can find them on uh, page 881 in your hymnal. Uh, so with that, let us continue on in this time of worship.
Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So when I was growing up, my family had a ranch in Texas, and on our ranch in Texas, we had a small man-made lake, which in Texan speak is called a tank, uh, that held the water for our cattle. The water level rose with the rain and fell with the droughts, but it was always a place for us as a family and with our friends to gather, to fish, and enjoy the peace of an afternoon. Just past our tank, over a hill, there was a wooded area populated mostly by mesquite and oak trees. And though I was too scared to go far into it when I was a child, I did like to go just a little ways in, down a makeshift stone staircase I built with my dad to play in the shade. Now, I had no shortage of things to do when I was a kid. I had plenty of toys, and I spent a good amount of time, probably more than I should have, playing video games. But of all of the entertainment that I knew, of all the fun that I had, there was something special about that little shady grove that captured my imagination. And it was all centered around this big, fallen oak tree. The tree had been broken and felled by a major storm long ago, before I could remember. And it was too big for anybody to move, and we never got around to cutting it up and hauling it off, so it just kind of laid there. It laid there for years, and I climbed on it, and I dug in the dirt around it, and it proved to be one of those things that held a lot more significance for me than I ever would have expected. It was dead and fallen, yes, but it became so much more valuable to me because it was on the ground than it ever would have been standing If it hadn't fallen, it would just have been another tree in the woods. As I think back now, though, I also remember the earthy smell of the damp leaves as they broke down around it, the strange appearance of the mushrooms that grew from it and under it, the buzz of the bugs and the chittering of creatures that made their homes in and around that tree. And it was all because that tree had fallen there in the woods. If you were here on Ash Wednesday, and I know that many of you were, then you know that today is the first Sunday of the Lenten season. This is a time for repentance and reflection, when we consider our own sinful, fallen lives and lament our role in the death of Jesus Christ, who was crucified on our behalf. Lent leads up to Good Friday and the passion of Jesus, but we aren't just a Good Friday people. 
we go through this season recognizing not only our own sin, but also the great love and power of Jesus Christ, because we are people of the resurrection. We see not only the death of Jesus, but that he was also raised back to life. Death and life, sin and forgiveness, these are the things that we hold in balance during this season. Like all the new life that could thrive because of a fallen oak tree, we as Christians hold tightly to the new life that's only possible, that's only possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. That's the balance we're going to be talking about during the season of Lent. We know that we are fallen people, broken and needing salvation. And we know that we worship a risen Savior who gave himself up so that death could be conquered with finality. Our scripture from 1 John this morning sets out both of these parts clearly, proclaiming first the goodness of God and then the brokenness of man. The only way for us to be purified of our sins, the author says, is to walk in God's light. So we're going to talk this morning about what it means to walk in God's light. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This is one of those odd metaphors that you find in ancient writings, especially when the authors were influenced by Greek philosophy. It's an unusual saying for us now, to be sure, but we can't dismiss it or just move on. John says it's the very message which we heard from Jesus Christ, and as such, it's something we have to take quite seriously. So what is light in this sense? Well, to say that God is light is to say that he is the source of all wisdom, all love, all holiness, and all glory that there is or could be. And to say that there is no darkness in him is to recognize that God is pure without any contradictions. Wisdom, love, holiness, and glory, these are things that, like light to our eyes, help us to see clearly and understand But the illumination offered here is spiritual in nature, dealing with matters of morality and the soul. But there's more than just that, especially if we're going to talk about walking in God's light. John continues to say that we cannot truly know fellowship with God while we continue to walk in the darkness of sin, and that to say anything else would be dishonest. This is a hard message for us to hear, especially now, because it challenges the contentment and complacency that we're so accustomed to. We hear that we're perfect where we are, or that what matters is our trying, or any number of other sayings that downplay our need for repentance and undermine the power of the gospel. Remember, the gospel proclaims the power of Jesus to change us, to sanctify us and make us pure, not to justify our sins, but to release us from them. It's good to know that you're a child of God, lovingly made and sustained by our Creator. It's a lie to say that because you're loved, you don't need to be changed. We all need to be changed. And when we justify our sins, when we dismiss them as insignificant or as though they don't really matter, we're not just willfully stepping out of God's light, We're saying that there's no difference at all between the light and the darkness. To truly be in fellowship with God is to recognize that he made you and that he loves you, and with humble submission to believe and accept that he has a plan for you that is good. Only then 
when we believe that he can drive out all that isn't holy and good, can we know true fellowship with him? Walking in the light doesn't only bring us closer to God either, but to each other as well. The church is a unique and amazing community that stretches across thousands of years and every continent. And it brings us together around a common belief and trust in Christ. The church, both local and universal, is built on our shared hope and on the idea that something big is happening right now, something that's changing us and changing our world. We're united by our faith and we're united by our commitment to strive after God, to strive to walk in the light. That kind of commitment naturally yields a desire for community because it's hard work. It is hard to strive after God. To try and go it alone would be difficult if not impossible because holiness is meant to be social in nature. In times of temptation and trial, we can lean on one another for help and on our brothers and sisters in Christ for support. Together, as we pursue lives that reveal the gospel to our neighbors and that follow Christ in everything, we share our burdens and our blessings. And we know fellowship with one another because we know fellowship with God. With all of that said, though, it's ultimately the sacrifice made by Jesus that purifies us of our sins. It's good to pursue holiness, and it's good to strive after righteousness and moral living, but we can't do any of that while we're still held by sin. It's a pervasive thing, sin, with each temptation spreading it just a little bit farther in our lives, and it creates more and more separation from God as it does. The greater our separation, the less able we are to be free of the bonds of sin. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can resist its draw at all, and it's only by his sacrifice that we can be cleansed of it. You know, we say that we've been saved by grace alone through faith alone, because we acknowledge that without the grace of Christ, we are powerless to resist sin. And as for the faith portion, we know that that means to have trust and to follow Jesus. We've talked about trusting, but what about following? This is a difficult topic because it's so easy to fall into relying too heavily on what we do or believing that we don't need to do anything at all. The hymnist Joseph Hart, best known for the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the zeal of the Pharisees and the lawlessness of the libertines are two engines of Satan, with only the Holy Spirit able to lead us safely between the two. We know that as Christians we should be doing good works, but we also know that our works themselves don't, cha- don't save us. This comes directly from Joel, too, when the prophet explains that what God desires from us is not just a change of action, but a change of heart, which is repentance. Joel says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Even back then, even so long ago during the times the Old Testament, long before Jesus was born, lived, died, or was raised, God's true desire 
wasn't for sacrifices, and it wasn't even for actions. He wanted repentance to be a matter of the heart. In Amos chapter 5, God shows that the hearts of the Israelites were hardened in a way that made them mistreat their neighbors. And so when their time for religious feast comes, he says, I hate your religious festivals. He decries their offerings and the sacrifices because what he truly wants is for them to know justice and righteousness in their hearts. In Psalm 51, David pleads, Create in me a pure heart, O God. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Giving to those in need, for example, isn't righteous if it's done to make you look good. Supporting a charity isn't holy if it's done so you can gain control. In the same way, good deeds and practices don't bring you closer to God by themselves. With regards to your soul, they aren't worth much unless they're accompanied by faith. To be followers of Christ, we have to have a faith that changes how we act. Good deeds are holy only if they're the result of our pursuit of Jesus. This is also true for repentance as well. A person might stop, for example, smoking and drinking and never start again, but that change doesn't save them any more than the actions can condemn them. The value to repentance comes from its basis in our trust of Jesus and our trust that he has come to set us free from our sins and that our desire for holiness is the pursuit of him and nothing else. We don't repent so that we can be saved, but so that we can walk close with Christ. But even that isn't entirely something that we can just decide to do. See, Jesus assures us that with our faith, we receive the Holy Spirit, which is changing us to our core, to the most basic of our desires. As the Spirit works within us, we become people who want to turn away from sin and who want to walk in the light because our faith causes changes to our actions, because it causes changes to our hearts. Please remember that we're saved by grace through faith and not by our works so that no man can boast, as Paul says. But also remember that we're saved so that we can do good works. The works are the results of salvation, not the other way around. Even as people saved by Jesus Christ, though, we always have to remember that nobody, not even us, is without sin. You might know that in theory, but Lent isn't the time for theory it's the time for repentance. No, nobody is without sin, though our exact sins can be difficult to see, especially because they're obscured by pride. We've been trained to believe that admitting fault is weakness, that there's danger to acknowledging your mistakes or wrongdoings, and I would say that that's half true. It is dangerous to admit that you've done wrong, especially when it risks status or reputation to do so but it's also morally right. In cases where you aren't afraid of losing your position, pride can still make it hard to see our sins because it makes self-reflection virtually impossible. When you're convinced that you're beyond fault, or at the very least that no one else can point out your faults, then it becomes hard to recognize problems when they do arise. After all, you never have problems if you think like that. It must just be how it's supposed to be. It's just how we are. 
Well, this is also true with the last sentence of our scripture. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, Jesus, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Repentance doesn't just mean turning away from your sins and pretending that they never happened. And to claim that we've never sinned betrays the gospel that says that everyone needs salvation. No, true repentance means fully acknowledging your past sins and actively going in a different direction. John also tells us that when we confess our sins, Jesus forgives us and washes us pure. When we try to turn from our sins without confessing them, we're just holding on to them and letting them fester and build. And that's not what God wants for us. God doesn't want us to bear that burden forever. No, we're called to offer our confessions at the foot of the cross, fully admitting that we have failed and need His grace. Are you too proud to admit that you've sinned? Then take seriously the question of whether you're trusting in yourself or in Jesus. Are you too afraid? Then hear the gospel message again. No power of sin is strong enough to separate you from the love of God. And forgiveness is available to all people, regardless of what they've done through faith in Christ. Confess your sins and experience the renewing love of Jesus and let yourself be transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are in desperate need, after all, of the gift that we have been offered. So as we go through Lent, I pray that we can see our need for forgiveness and that we can see that we've been offered even more than that. I hope that we can see where we are and where we've come from and then that we can see where God wants us to go, where God wants to take us. There is new life offered to everyone who repents of their sins and believes in the gospel. So let us do both each day, each moment, and see how the Holy Spirit works. Amen.